This is episode 14 of What's the Deal, Grosseal, the podcast exploring the people, places, history, and events that make Grosseal unique. I'm your host, Ben Fote. I'll warn you now that this episode runs a bit long, a bit longer than what I've been targeting, but trust me, it's worth every second. Now, this may get me in trouble, but if you didn't already know, I grew up in Ohio. We learned a little bit of Ohio history, but all the Michigan history I ever got in school involved Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler. I knew about Anthony Wayne and Tecumseh and Oliver Hazard Perry and William Henry Harrison. I knew about the Greenville Treaty and the battles on the Great Lakes, the Erie, the Ohio Erie, the Wabash Erie, and the Miami Erie Canals. But anything north of Toledo, even the Toledo War, was new to me when I got here. I'm no help with my kids' Michigan history homework. But I am a curious person. And one of those curiosities was why Fort Detroit was so far north. Wouldn't the mouth of the Detroit River be more important? Well, today, we'll see that it certainly was. And that put Grosseal in the middle of some important events, especially in the War of 1812 when the British occupied the other side of the river, and it was a lot harder to get from Ohio into Michigan. I'm so happy to be able to share this with you today. It's just one more layer in the history that belongs to the islands that make up our township. Someone who knows a lot about how the War of 1812 played out in our area of southeast Michigan is Rusty Davis, a volunteer at the River Raisin National Battlefield in what is now Monroe. I reached out to Rusty to talk about the fighting there in 1813, but also how the Detroit River was involved in the war. Thank you for joining me, Rusty. Thank you for having me, Ben. Tell me about the Michigan Territory in 1812. What we know is that Grosseal was chartered in 1776, but the population was really sparse. So where did the people live in Southeast Michigan and what, what sort of jobs did they do? The people in, in Southeast Michigan actually lived along the shoreline of from north of Lake St. Clair all the way down through Detroit, both sides of the Detroit River, down into what is now Monroe County. And in the way the French land was set up, they would always front on a river. And then we'd have a, a narrow piece of land, but it would go back sometimes a mile further into the, into the interior. It would usually go to the next major water course. So in some instances, they may have something that's a couple hundred feet wide and, and a couple of miles long. Before 1810, there were about 5,000 people in Michigan. And this is, this is how they lived. They lived you know, all of these long French lots along. If you look at, uh, if you look at a Monroe map, for instance, if you bring up a Google map of Monroe with the roads on it, you can Mm -hmm. still see how the French property was situated according to the river. And then the surveying that was laid out in the uh, Northwest Ordinance of square mile plots, you can see how the French land is superimposed on or vice versa, superimposed on each other and don't really fit because 90 degrees from the river is how the French settled and the Americans came in and surveyed north, south, east, west. So you had that <laughs> that difference in it. But the rivers were very important because there were no roads to speak of. There were no, uh, the interior roads were just trails or traces. In fact, um, through here, what is Jefferson Avenue in Detroit and down into the Down River communities, uh-huh. first road that was surveyed in Michigan that went anywhere. That was surveyed in 1809. It went from what is now Hart Plaza, where the Indian Council House used to stand, to the rapids of the Maumee, which is Perrysburg, Ohio. Wow. And that was a, a local trail that had been used by people. That was the only surveyed road into Michigan into the 1820s, in fact. 
that's that's what linked uh, Michigan back to what what you would call civilization at the time. <laughs> there was sure. nothing else below us. After the Battle of Fallen Timbers, which was fought in 1795, I think it was, the Treaty of Greenville set out Indian Territory in Northwest Ohio. That isolated Michigan from any other any other states. And in the middle of that Indian Territory was what they call the Great Black Swamp, which was 120 miles long, 40 miles wide. It was only passable on horseback or in the winter when it was frozen over. It was full of malaria mosquitoes, everything you can imagine, wildcats, and all kinds of all kinds of nasty and mean things. There are there's a a tale about one of the uh, postal riders that his horse actually fell into one of the bogs and drowned before he could get him out because it was just so full of water, high ground here and there and and whatnot. It was impassable with any wheeled vehicles. Uh, And that was a big blockade for anybody to come into Michigan. And and it was there until the late 1850s, 60s, and 70s before it was finally drained out. So that isolated Michigan. That was the purpose of this single road, was to go down to the rapids of the Maumee, which then would take you around the western end of the Great Black Swamp and back into, into Ohio. Ohio was a state in 1803. Yeah, so these days we experience that that border change is uh, just I-75, and you wouldn't ever think that that was impassable at some point. Exactly. Uh, you know, it was north of the Maumee River, it wasn't too bad, but south of the Maumee River, it was nearly impassable. And that went almost all the way to Fort Wayne? Almost all the way to Fort Wayne to the west and nearly to uh, Sandusky in the east. Wow. And as far south as as the Findlay area. So it was a huge area. So this takes us a little bit away from from what we wanted to talk about. But that that sort of explains why Toledo was was more part of Michigan at that point. And why they fought that war over it eventually. Right. Well, at the time that, that Ohio became a state, that was still considered Indian territory where, where Toledo was, too. That was part of the uh, Treaty of Greenville Indian Reserve area. So did Anthony Wayne give him that land because the swamp was there? It was no good for you know <laughs> How did this, who knows what the, right. how that came out. That'd have to be looked into. But yeah. um, it, it also had, uh, it could have had an impact on, on, uh, the Underground Railroad coming into Michigan because most of the people that came to Michigan escaped slaves seem to have come in further west than than the Detroit area. They would come in okay. over around Marshall, over in you know in, in the southwestern counties is where they would enter the state and then oh. travel across to Detroit by train. Well, how would they get around that swamp? You know, they might not know it's there, but as they ran up against it, they would keep going one way or the other to try to find their way around it and. That was Absolutely. where the people traveled in. So, well, to get back toward the topic at the battlefield, there, you know, if we head up toward from from the you know eighteen or the seventeen hundreds into the early eighteen hundreds, uh, the Americans and the British had military installations along the Detroit River, right? Yes. So, where were those, and and what purposes did they serve it uh, before the War of eighteen twelve? Well, before the War of 1812, Detroit was established in 1701, and pretty much what it was was a fur trading post. Um, That was what they wanted. They wanted the furs out of the Great Lakes area. The British didn't establish a fort on their side until after the British turned over Michigan 
to the United States. After, after the Treaty of Paris, this Revolutionary War, they held on to Michigan for a number of years and claimed that they were owed money. The, the merchants in London were owed money by the Americans, and if they don't pay it back, we're not going to give it. But what they were doing is they were pulling fur out of here like crazy because that was... You know, there were huge markets for it at the time. Sure, we were the sure. world supplier for the fur trade, basically. After they left Michigan, they built the fort that's now in Amherstburg called Fort Malden. That was when the British established that fort. And they established it further south than Fort Detroit, of course. They're closer to the mouth of the Detroit River, which played into what happened in the War of 1812. They were in a better position to protect the Detroit River than Detroit was. Detroit being closer to the northern end of the river. Sure. You know, the, the people that were here, pretty much they were subsistence farmers or traders, but there was other trading going on. We have, a, at, at the park, we have a copy of a, of a ledger from a trading post ledger that we um, acquired copies from the uh, Hayes Presidential Library in Fremont, Ohio. And it's the Godfrey and Bogran family, and they're trading in whiskey because they had a distillery. So, well, to make whiskey, somebody had to be raising crops somewhere and they had to be raising more crops than they were consuming or they couldn't have sold them to these men. So there was other, there was other farming going on in the area, but it isn't talked about much. Usually what's talked about is the fur trade or trading with the Indians, whatever that comprised of. So. Sure. The island, Grosseal has a big, big history of that with. Grosseal was very, yeah, there was uh I have a, a copy of an 1815 map that's out of the National Archives that shows during during the War of 1812 there are, there are two camps two camp areas that they that they say Tecumseh was was using his followers mm-hmm. and on the other side of the uh, island which I think it's Swan Island today mm-hmm. there were there were natives camped there also probably the Wyandot that he evacuated out of Brownstown and McGuaga after initially the, the Wyandotte were trying to stay neutral and they were compelled to join the British. And at that point to protect their families, they moved them to, to grow zeal. So my guess, that's the area that they were in there. So, and of course, um, grow zeal has one of only two bicentennial farms in Michigan on it. And um, that's that's quite a feat for a family to own the same land for over 200 years. So Yeah, and anybody who's interested in that can listen to episode two of the podcast and, and hear more about that. Grozeal does have a rich history of sitting right there and being in the middle of everything, so to speak. When they would cross the river, that was what they'd do. They would canoe over, I mean, you know, island to island to island. you kind of island hop across. Or, or in the winter, if, if they dared do it, they could cross on the ice from island to Island, but so the War of eighteen twelve starts around June of eighteen twelve. What happens in in this area during that that period, the beginning parts of the war? Well, the first thing that happened was our uh, territorial governor William Hull was commissioned as a as a brigadier general at the same time that he was still the territorial governor, and he went to Urbana, Ohio, and marched an army back to Detroit from uh, primarily they were Ohio volunteer militia. When he got to the rapids of the Maumee, because that was how you had to come up and, and cross, uh-huh. they were they were kind of hurried because he was trying to get to Detroit. He just hadn't even he didn't even know that war had been declared at that time. Hmm. He put all of his a lot of his stores that he was bringing along in wagons and that on a on a packet ship called the Cuyahoga. And 
unbeknownst to him, his son put his personal papers and letters on there also. So that had his commission in it and all of his correspondence with the War Department. As that packet tried to make it to Detroit, they went up the right channel on the side towards Amherstburg, and the British were aware the war had been declared, and they captured the ship and captured all Hull's papers, and, you know, everybody that was sick that was on the boat, and, you know, a few Americans. So that was not a good start to the war. No. <laughs> Eventually, Hull did get his army to Detroit. That road is uh, still there today. He marched up primarily Jefferson Avenue. If you start at the north bank of the River Raisin in Monroe and walk, drive, however you want to do it, you can end up on Hart Plaza in downtown Detroit on the same road that's been there for since about 1809. That was the road that Hull came in on. Things got off to a bad start because as soon as the British started going through what they'd captured, they realized that they had a gold mine. They had you know, all of his troop muster rolls and his letters with the Secretary of War. They had Hull's, what he was thinking and his journals, everything was there. I mean, they were they were all primed. They had more information than he did of what was going on. So it all kind of went downhill from there. He did make it to Detroit in July, and by August the 16th, he'd surrendered Detroit. Wow. You know, he's chastised. He's, he's considered a lot of things, but when you really get right down to it, the man didn't have much choice. Uh, as I said, the British built their fort at the mouth of the Detroit River, so they controlled the river. His only supply line was the road that he walked back up or come in by water. They controlled the water. They could easily jump across a few islands and, and head off any any troops that he sent south or that were headed north. So he didn't have a whole lot of choice, really. You know, people say that, well, he didn't even try to fight. But, you know, had he done that, what would have been the purpose? You know, sure. even if he won the battle, he couldn't have held it because the British held the supply lines. Wow. So he would have just caused a lot of needless death, basically. And at the same time, he was also, like I said, he was still the, the civil governor of the state of Michigan. So he had all of the people in the state of Michigan he's thinking about, not just his army. It's really uh, sort of unfortunate the way he's been portrayed. <laughs> sure. That's, you know, the way history goes. So. <laughs> William Henry Harrison's in charge of the troops at this point, right? Yes. Uh, uh, American Harrison forces. Was, was put in charge of what they called the Northwest Army. And okay. his goal was to retain or to re, re, recapture Detroit from the British. So his army was, he had a lot of different militia in his army. They weren't, you know, they were from Ohio, Kentucky, Virginia, Pennsylvania. Uh, he built quite a big army. But Winchester, William Winchester, who was in charge of or the right side, no, the left side of the uh, left wing of the army, he primarily had Kentucky troops. And, and they left Kentucky in August in their homespun uniforms. And by the time they got to up to this part of the country, it was January in the snow. The British, after they captured Detroit, they had sent some troops and some natives. The natives were allied with them down to this area, what's today Monroe. At the time, they referred to this area as the River Raisin. Sure. It wasn't called Monroe. It wasn't called Frenchtown. It was the River Raisin. When Winchester got closer to here, some of the men from this area went down and pled, or you know, and pled with him to please come and help us because they were they were occupied by the British and the, and the natives, and the natives were they said they were treating them bad and whatnot. So Winchester, of course, on the 18th of January, he did send troops up here, and they pushed the British out of town, out of the area, 
occupied several of the homes and, and barns and outbuildings of a little area right by uh, where, where the road crosses, where Dixie Highway crosses now. There was about six homes within a picket-fenced area, a stockaded area. It wasn't a stockade for defense. It was a stockade to keep farm animals or wild animals out of their gardens. So it was small saplings, just it wasn't really strong. It would not have held up to cannon fire, but it would hold up to small arms fire. So they occupied the area from the 18th. Well, on the 22nd, Proctor came back. He brought his troops across from Amherstburg, Fort Malden, over to Brownstown, marched down, spent the night at Swan Creek, and the next morning came down and attacked the Americans. Because of the way uh, Winchester didn't get into town until all of the troops had been billeted in the houses. So he had no place to stay because he didn't want to displace any of the wounded. He didn't want to displace it. He stayed on the south side of the river at the Francis Navarre house, which was about a half a mile away from the from the battle. Mm-hmm. So when the battle started, he was over there. He wasn't with his troops when, when the attack started. As he raced back here or back to the where the battle was, by that point, the natives had already turned the 17th U.S., had turned their flank, and they were fleeing across the River Raisin to escape. And Hull got caught up in that melee, and he was captured. So here we've got all of these Kentuckians fighting and repulsing the British that are behind the picket fences, and Hull's been captured and is with Proctor. And Proctor told him, either send them in a letter of defeat or you know, I can't guarantee that anybody's going to survive. Basically, Winchester sent in a, a letter with one of his aides to surrender. And these guys, what do you mean surrender? We're winning. You know? <laughs> they were running low on ammunition. Though, so sure. they were, uh, and then, so that's what happened. Everyone surrendered. The All the arms were collected. And all of the able troops were marched off to Fort Malden very quickly because the troops actually outnumbered the British. The surrendered troops outnumbered the British. Wow. And Proctor was not only concerned for that, he was also afraid that there were reinforcements coming quickly and he wanted to get out of the area. So he left all of the wounded behind in the homes and outhouses of these buildings. Uh, The next day, natives came back. Native Americans came back into the community with uh, vengeance on their mind. And anybody that could not walk was just killed. Anybody that could walk, most of them were taken captive and, and ransomed. Or in the native tradition, if it was your prisoner, you could do what you wanted with them. So some of the men never were, were accounted for. Out of the first day's fighting, 33 out of about 960 men are all that escaped uh, out of the first day. Wow. So you see, we had a lot of people that were captured. They don't know exactly the count of how many were killed. The numbers range into the 300s. But uh, the men that were left behind that were not able to walk, all of those buildings were burned. The Indians burned them because the Americans had used them for war against them. So basically the community, what was here, the, the heart of the community was was just devastated because it was burned. In, in the process of the Kentuckians marching up this way, they had, had desecrated Indian graves when they found them, uh, shot any Indian they saw on sight and scalped them and, and they would strip their bodies and, and cut razor strokes out of the flesh. I mean, it was just, they, they would butcher them, literally. So the Indians were very, very angry and forbid any of the locals to bury any of the dead American soldiers. So there's tales of wild hogs and dogs running around with arms and body parts in their mouths and 
occasionally somebody would sneak out and, and try to bury somebody at night only to find out that they were dug up the next day again when the, when that was found out. So wow. most of the people here left as if they could, they got out and abandoned the area. But, um, and that would, be, were, that would be really tough during in January. Oh yeah. Well, there was two feet of snow on the ground during this battle. Uh, huh. That was part of the way that, you know, the slaughter of, of those escaping across the river was so easy because the natives were on ponies and these men are trying to run through two feet of snow. It was very easy to, to come up behind them and just club them in the back of the head and move on. The ones that were ransomed were taken to Detroit and people would ransom them and then turn them over to the British. And so uh, some of the men that wrote tales of, of their experience said that they were treated better by the Indian captives than they were by the British when they were turned over to them. Which oh, wow. <laughs> is kind of interesting, you know, but... Uh, What's the effect on this to the rest of America? Well, after two huge defeats in, in Michigan, the rest of the country was just, they were just stunned. I mean, in, in August, you'd had an entire army was surrendered without... Lewis Cass ran to Washington and said it was it was surrendered without firing a shot. That was the propaganda on it. And then in January, you've lost another entire army. You've lost 900 men again. You know, they were two huge, huge losses. At that point, everybody's scrambling to try to cover themselves. And I didn't do it. I didn't do it. You know, and Harrison immediately wrote a letter saying that that Winchester, against his orders, had, had made this attack. And so, you know, everybody's trying to cover themselves so they don't get pulled into this. But uh, it, it was... It was very devastating, on not only on country, but the people in Kentucky that when the casualty list started coming back, you know, who was in what what units and what companies and, and if anybody knew of where they were. So it, it was it was really it'd be really tough on people when you think about it. Yeah, that would devastate that whole. Was Kentucky a state at that point? Yes, Kentucky was a state. Oh, yeah. uh, it was and some of the people that, that were here were, you know, I mean, they were, they were like the shining stars. Um, Captain Hart was like the son-in-law of, um, I can't think of it, Henry Clay. Okay. So there were, a lot of them were attorneys and, you know, prominent business people. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln's uncle was a soldier here. He was a surgeon. He oh. survived the battle, but he was left behind when the British went, you know, marched the troops away. He was left behind to take care of the, take care of the wounded. He, he did survive the battle, but yeah, it's interesting some of the connections back to here. Sure. It, as a matter of fact, if you if you look on on uh, something like YouTube for information about the battle, a lot of it comes from Kentucky history. Yes. And their PBS stations and and such. Yeah, the Michigan Monroe, Monroe, Michigan is the only place authorized to fly the Kentucky flag out of the state of Kentucky. <laughs> and and we have a monument on the south side of town that the Kentucky flag flies daily above that. Even when they play Michigan or Michigan State in basketball, huh? Yeah, even during basketball. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't happen in Indiana, I'll tell you that. No, well, it's you know, there's two. We we fly a flag at the uh, at, at the battlefield at the visitor center also. So I understand that that it became a, the river raisin became a slogan for America yes. about right. about that time. I remember the raisin? It was probably um, as far as we can figure out through research. It was the first the first war rallying cry that was ever used in this country. You know, it beat out, remember the Maine and uh, remember Pearl Harbor. And, you know, it was the first one. It was when, when the, uh, after Harrison took, had charge of the army, of course, and then the, later in September of, of 1813, 
they finally defeated the British on Lake Erie. Commander Perry, or Commodore Perry did. And after they defeated the British on Lake Erie, the whole western part of Canada was then open for invasion. Harry, Harrison ferried his troops across, chased Proctor up to the, the Thames River, and as the uh, the last place that the, that they made a made a defensive stand that the British did. And as the mounted Kentucky troops rode against the British, that's what they were yelling was, remember the raisin, remember the raisin. So mm-hmm. uh, that's where Tecumseh was killed. When, once Tecumseh was dead, the Indian coalition in this part of the country pretty much fell apart. In essence, that was the end of the war in the western part of, of Michigan. Um, nobody forgot, though, that the natives were were involved and that the natives were allied with the British. And, and as soon as the war was over, Lewis Cass, who had been made uh, territorial governor, he started lobbying to move all the Indians west of the Mississippi. Sure. And, and Cass became the Secretary of War in the, in the Andrew Jackson administration. And that's exactly what they did was they just cleaned all of the tribes out east of the Mississippi. So in a sense, it all came out of what happened here in Michigan. Yeah, Indian removal had a lot got a lot of impetus about impetus about what happened here. And you know, connecting that back to to Grosseil, the Alexander Macomb, the the one of the the sons of the Macomb brothers. Not it's actually Alexander Macomb's nephew, I believe. He was involved in that the native relocation as well. So yeah, well, he was he was military, right? He was in right. charge. Close to Detroit in uh, 1817. Uh, 1817, they they had realized because of the what happened in the war, the way the British were able to cut off American supplies and everything, that it was important to have a good road between Detroit and and Ohio. So, the road that Hull had marched up in 1800 or in 1812 was resurveyed in 1817 as the military road. In our collections, we got these out of the National Archives. We have large maps that were drawn in 1817 that go from Detroit to Monroe. And then there's another map that goes from Monroe to uh, the rapids of the Maumee. So that was surveyed in 1817 by Colonel John Anderson of the Army Corps of Engineers. He had been stationed in Detroit in the artillery during the uh, siege during the War of 1812 and been captured. And uh, he came back and to Detroit and was in charge of the Corps of Engineer office there. When he, he died sometime in 1835, and the, his death is kind of mysterious. I don't know exactly how he died. Nobody seems to know how or where. But his wife, when she passed away, her money went, and they built Mariner's Church. Was Mar- Mariner's Church was moved. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it, hmm. it used to be on the other side of well, it was where it originally was, and it was on the other side of Hart Plaza. So then it was moved over to where it is today, and it's right about on top of where the council house was during the pre-war era. So We've talked a little bit about the, the battlefield park where, where you're a volunteer. Uh-huh. Tell me more about that, especially I, I understand that there, there's a plan to expand the facilities. Well, we're doing it right now, to be honest with you. For years, it was a county park, and it was in a—it was just a little small converted house. Was the visitor center? Congressman Dingle was very, very instrumental in getting the park established as a national park. We're one of the only parks that was legislated into existence. So it, when it became a, a national park, it changed a lot. A lot of the interpretation changed. You know, it's a larger 
more, uh, you know, more inclusive interpretation of what happened here for one thing. But yes, mm -hmm. we moved, the house was closed. It, it all kind of coincided with, with COVID. The, the house was so small, we couldn't really keep it open for visitors because you couldn't social distance in it. So, so the visitor center has been closed for a, um, not quite a year, but almost a year. Sure. And we're moving over to the abandoned ice arena in Monroe, which is just across the way. It's, I think on a straight line, it's, it's a half a mile, but I mean, you can, you can stand one to the other and almost see the other one. So uh, yeah. we'll have a huge, you know, we'll have an entire, we had two ice surfaces. We're going to have one whole ice surface is where the displays are going to be. It's going to okay. be, we have a, a very modern theater is going to be built or well, it is built. It's ready for, for the park film or whatever else we need to use it for the big lobby with a display or a gift shop. It'll, it'll be really nice. It'll be, it's not going to be called a visitor center. It's called the education center. Our, our park superintendent is, is a very progressive man. And we've had several bus tours, what he, he calls them journeys of understanding. And <laughs> he gets a busload of educators and native people. And they tour Northwest Ohio, 18, 12 sites on into Canada. And, wow. and the, the teachers have written curriculum for their classrooms out of these trips. So the teachers have had a lot of impact or a lot of input on what we're what we're going to show there. It's been there's a lot of a lot of educational input into the displays and how the displays are set up. So it's going to be a very unique place. Hopefully, it'll be open in early summer of this coming year. That's that's the goal. If everything goes right, we'll see how it goes. And I understand there's going to be some restoration or some, some uh, I guess in this case, because the buildings are burned down, it would be... Uh, recreations. Yeah, recreations. There, there is uh, an effort to do that. Uh, the National Park Service will not build. They won't build anything that doesn't or restore anything that doesn't exist. So it'll all have to be done. It, it's kind of odd. The, the land... Some of it's national belongs to the national park. Some of it belongs to the national park foundation, and some of the battlefield land belongs to the city. Okay. On city land or foundation land, we could rebuild houses, recreations of what we think they may have looked like. At the time, of course, there were no photographs, so we don't know. We only have we have written descriptions. We have a lot of written descriptions. I was one. I'm a couple of us went to Washington and and identified which files we needed and then we we had to hire a person and she scanned all of these so we had the claims that all of the the residents turned in to be reimbursed for their losses during the war so in those claims they they do say what buildings they had and some of them have the sizes of the building you know dimensions and, and they'll tell what they had brief descriptions of what were in them you know none of them are really extensive but sure. but you do get a sense of what they were and, and that's something that, that I think a lot of people don't think of. The houses didn't look like most people think of little cabins and, and shacks. Well, we have what we like to say is the oldest existing resident in the state of Michigan setting out in a county park, and that's the Anderson Navarre Trading Post. Mm -hmm. It has white clabbered on the sides of it, so it looks like a little house. The French called that weatherboard. They didn't call it clabber and they didn't call it siding. It was weatherboard to protect the logs that were underneath from the weather. They would they would hew the logs square so that would expose the heartwood. And so they would put, put siding on their homes so that it would their logs wouldn't rot away. So it looks like a little white 
little white bungalow, basically. It'll be interesting as we reconstruct things and people would come and see that. And it's like their concept is going to be they're going to see a log cabin like Lincoln Logs or something. And that's not what they're going to be seeing. <laughs> they're going to be seeing kind of like little houses. I, and But of course, all that takes money and time. So everybody can use money, as everybody knows. So that's the, the national park is not going to pay for any of this. It's all going to have to come out of donated funding or grant money. Just seeing what I, what I've seen of it, it looks like it's going to be an amazing place to go to when when it, the it dream gonna, starts to be filled out. I, I I'm kind of biased, Ben, but yeah, I believe it's going to be it's going to be a big thing. Well, um, we all have to be biased towards something. Yes, it's, it'll, be, <laughs> it'll be a huge. It'll have the potential to be a huge attraction. I mean, you know. Is your is anyone that lives in Southeast Michigan knows the whole I seventy five corridor is being built rebuilt around the Gordie Howe Bridge project, and the idea is to get as many people through this area as you can and have reasons for them to get off the highway and come and see you. You know, because we're a national park, we have a brand that does attract people, that'll pull people in. Uh, yes. Also, you know, working with the educators in the state like we have, it'll be a huge resource for educators. Well, speaking of of getting people there, how do we get there from from Detroit and downriver? Well, the, the the old way would be to just drive down Jefferson Avenue. That would be the old way. We're located <laughs> at 333 North Dixie Highway, which is just on the north side of the River Raisin right at, at that intersection of Elm Street, which was River Road or the, you know, the River Trail mm-hmm. and the Dixie Highway. Or you could come down I-75 and get off at exit 15. Exit 15. All and right. just, as you get off, coming from the north, when you get off on exit 15, turn to the right and you'll go past uh, some of the fast food places and that, and you'll go underneath the railroad tracks and come up and it's right around on that road. That, that is Dixie Highway, so you'll come right there. That would be the way to come from the highway. Either way, you could get off at exit 15. If you're coming from the south, you could do the same thing. You just okay. have to cross back over. What sort of things are there to do right now with the offices and the activities shut down? Well, right now, most of what we've been trying to do is, is things online, virtual things. Um, we're, we're coming up to the anniversary, the, the annual anniversary of the battles, will be this next weekend. Not this in, in fact, we'll, we'll publish this episode right in the middle of it. One of the things that the park is doing is they're putting together some video from past years. We, we typically do a, a reenactment, a commemoration reenactment, a tactical demonstration. And then we've had people come from Canada and it's been a big thing in years past, but this year we can't do that. So this year right. it'll be a virtual thing and they'll be, they're putting together a film of some of the past years so that they can show, you know, what what has happened. And we're hoping next year at this time that we'll be able to be back into that where we can have 50 to 100 men out there reenacting what was going on and have cannon and everything firing off and people enjoy that. But well, this that year really sounds amazing. Yeah, this, this year it'll be, if anything, it'll just be a small memorial service on the day of the battle just to, just to remember the date. So. All right. All right. Well, th- this has been a great conversation, and and I really appreciate that. And I know that our listeners will want to visit and learn more to experience the history down there. One thing I, I do on the podcast is I ask the guests to share a wish. If you could have a wish granted for Grosse Isle or Southeast Michigan or, or the people of the area, what would it be? 
I, I think I, I would like to include all of Southeast Michigan, and I would like the people to just just realize what's what is in this area of the state. You know, we have we have a lot to be thankful for down here, really, if you think about it. You know, we have Monroe doesn't, but Wayne County has a great trail system. You have you know a nice the Metro Park area. We have some wonderful history. Fort Wayne that that sets there was referred to as Spring Wells during the War of eighteen twelve. Uh, that's where the British landed to attack Detroit. Uh, the Americans had a cannon there and bombarded Sandwich from there. The peace treaty with the local Indians was signed there in 1815. And just about every man that's below the age, well, that's above the age, let's say, of 55 or 60, probably remembers going there for a physical and being shipped off to <laughs> some military station. So there's a lot of history there. We have a lot of history. Monroe is, is the second old, well, the, we're, the, we're the second oldest county in the state. We have history down here that's that's amazing. And it's the same with the downriver. You know, the first, the first Besmer steel plant west of the Appalachians was built just south of the city of Wyandotte. You know, and the shipbuilding that went on up there. There's a lot here. Is the point? If oh, absolutely. Would realize that and appreciate it and support it. And that's uh, you know, Greenfield Village is a huge thing. That's that sets on part of the land that was the Dearborn Military Reserve. So it's that. I guess that would be my wish, and and for people to come out. And and one plug I would like to give when we are open, uh-huh. uh, the park has developed a driving tour of the war of 1812 and, and it's it's not very much money it's ten dollars for the book but it yeah. covers areas in northern ohio throughout michigan all the way into canada so if anybody wanted to learn about the war of 1812 it's a good start because it's just small two three paragraphs about each location can we order that through the the online presence i think you could order that through the through the national yeah through the park okay We're, River is a national battlefield park. I will try to find that, include that in our notes uh, with the podcast this week. I think everyone is, from what we've talked about today, I think everyone is going to go out and, and take advantage of some of the, the history that we've got oh, and, uh, so. and take a look at that. And, and I really appreciate that. Rusty, I want to thank you so much for your time today and sharing the history of our region. I think we'll probably come back to you and talk about some other things here down in the future. Okay. But I want to let you know, I appreciate you and I appreciate the rest of the battlefield staff and the volunteers down there. Well, thank you very much, Ben. I'm so glad I got to share this with you today. I went again to extend my thanks to Rusty and everyone at the River Raisin National Battlefield Park. This episode is premiering on January 21st, 2021, in the middle of the annual remembrance of the battles. January 22nd was the second battle, and the massacre occurred on January 23rd. You can get more information from the River Raisin National Battlefield Park web and social media sites, which will be linked in the notes and the transcript. I'll also link to the book that Rusty mentioned that would help you tour the sites of the War of 1812 in our area. I hope you enjoy these looks at the history of our area of the river. If there's any other gross eel history that you'd like to hear more about, let me know. Contact information is also in those notes. What's the Deal Gross Eel is recorded and produced by me, Ben Fote. You can keep in touch with me through the What's the Deal Gross Eel Facebook page or email me at whatsthedealgi at gmail.com. 
You can share episodes from Facebook or hear them from the website, whatsthedealgi.com. And of course, it never hurts to subscribe so you can get the latest episodes through your favorite podcast delivery tool, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and so many others. Our intro and credit music is Mocktails in the Rain by Anti Ludo, which is used through a Creative Commons license. Find more of his music on soundclick.com as Anti's Instrumentals. Thanks for listening to What's the Deal, Grosiel? <laughs>